Welcome to a new conversation on the Retirement Wisdom Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Casey. Our mission is to help share information that will help you to retire smarter. And you won't want to miss today's conversation. In recent years, breakthroughs in a variety of fields are unlocking a new view of what's possible in our later years. This research shows that we can sustain peak performance much longer than anyone thought possible. But there's a big difference between theory and practice. Stephen Kotler set out to see how this research would work in the real world. He decided to take on a personal experiment, teaching himself to park ski at age 53, which, because of various biological factors, is considered nearly impossible for anyone over the age of 35. His new book, Nar Country, Growing Old, Staying Rad, is a chronicle of that learning adventure. And it's really about decoding the secrets of peak performance aging that are redefining what's possible in the second half of our lives. Stephen Kotler is a New York Times bestselling author, an award-winning journalist, and the executive director of the Flow Research Collective. He's one of the world's leading experts on human performance. He's the author of 11 bestsellers out of 14 books he's written including The Art of Impossible, The Future is Faster Than You Think, Stealing Fire, The Rise of Superman, Old, and Abundance. His work has been nominated for two Pulitzer Prizes, translated into over 50 languages, and has appeared in over 100 publications, including The New York Times Magazine, Wired, Atlantic Monthly, The Wall Street Journal, Time, and The Harvey Business Review. He's also the co-founder of Creating Equilibrium, a conference concert innovation accelerator focused on solving critical environmental challenges. And alongside his wife, author Joy Nicholson, he's the co-founder of Rancho de Chihuahua, a hospice care, special needs care dog sanctuary in the mountains of northern New Mexico. This conversation is jam-packed with useful information. I hope you'll stick with it. But also stick around at the end for my takeaway segment where I share three things you might want to consider to translate this conversation into action you can use. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us today. Joe, it's my pleasure. I loved your latest book, and, but I thought it would be a good place to start just to explain the story behind the title for those who aren't familiar with the terminology. So the book is called NAR Country. NAR is spelled G-N-A-R. It is action sports slang and action sports for all like the wildly colorful slang action sport athletes are actually, they perform in life or death environments and they're very literal. So even though the terminology is fancy, it has very specific meanings and NAR and or gnarly is defined as any environment that is high in perceived risk and high in actual risk. So you think it's scary and it actually is scary. Nar country, country is any territory or landscape or terrain, right? Nar country is a book about peak performance aging. And what I liked about the title so much is I felt like Nar, Nar, there was a really great, great definition of our later years, like high in perceived risk, high in actual risk. It turns out, and this will be, you know, some of what we talk about today, it's also a really good sort of description of like the gritty mindset it takes to really thrive in the second half of your life. And so you put those things together and I was like, okay, I really like this title. And of course, 
the book tells the story of a fairly radical experiment in peak performance aging, and it was conducted inside of action sports. So it also, it resonates with that too. So the term peak performance aging got my attention right away. How do you define it? So it's interesting. Let me make a big picture statement and then let me define, let, let actually, let me start. No, let me start with definition. So at the Flow Research Collective, we're on the executive director, we're a peak performance research and training organization. We define peak performance as the following. Peak performance is nothing more or nothing less than getting our biology to work for us rather than against us. And this is, by the way, not a new idea, right? You go back 100 years, William James in the very first psychology textbook said the great thing in any education is to make our nervous system our ally and not our enemy. And by nervous system, he meant brain and body, basically. So not a new idea, but that's really what we mean by peak performance. Peak performance aging, by extension, is getting our biology to work for us rather than against us when applied to the challenges and opportunities the second half of our lives, right? Very simple what I mean by that. Bigger picture, the old idea about aging. I like to call it the long, slow rot theory, right? And I'm sure you guys have talked about it a ton on this, on this podcast. It's the idea that all of our mental skills and all of our physical skills decline over time, and there's nothing we can do to stop the slide. And this was the story, unless you happen to be in your 20s, and then it might have changed a little bit. This is the story we all grew up. This is the story we were all told, right? I grew up with it. You grew up with it. And most of us believe parts of it, all of it, but it's, it's there in our, in, our, in our thinking, in our culture dangerous idea. And we'll probably talk about that later when we talk about mindset in a second, but it's also not true. That's the cool part. It was true up to about like, it started the long, slow rot theory. A lot of people don't know this. It starts with Freud. Freud makes a statement in 1907, writes something in, in his book, Beyond Psychotherapy, and basically says, you can't do psychotherapy in anybody over 50. They're just, their brains aren't flexible. They're no longer educable. Right. And that's the beginning of the long, slow route theory. And by 1994, we have just proved him right in like 400 different ways. We can tell you in exacting detail about what happens to the brain and the body over time. And then in 1995, data starts showing up that says, hey, wait a minute, not so fast. Right. And it's some of the data is studies that got started on longevity back in the 70s that finally get finished 20 years later because they've got data. And those start appearing and we start looking at that. Some of it is we've got new brain imaging technology and new genomic screenings and a whole bunch of tech shows up. The upside is that where we are now, 2023, is every single thing we thought was declined over time. There's nothing we could do to stop the slide. We now know they're all use it or lose it skills, right? So if we can hang, train these skills, we get to hang on to them and even advance them far later in life than we thought possible. So if you ask me colloquially, what is peak performance aging? It's how do we advance this stuff, right? It's, it's how do you kick ass till you kick the bucket? That's like colloquially, that's what we're talking about here, right? Like quite simply. And, but mind you, I am not exactly talking about, this isn't longevity science. This is man-aging. That's a benefit. You'll get some of that. That's a different side of this equation. It's advancing at the same time that we're having this conversation, which is great. This is a different set of, this is about like the quality not the quantity. It'll help with the quantity, but it's really about the quality. All about the health span, not the lifespan. Quality of health span, I think. Yeah. Well, so, so you mentioned mindset. Given that, that landscape, what should the new mindset be that we should be shifting to and embracing? So this is wild. One of the deepest findings, if you get into like aging right now, is that 
the mind-body connection is so unbelievably tight that all the major levers, all the biggest things we could reach for are actually psychological tools. They've got neurobiology underneath them, which is why they work, but those are the huge interventions. And nowhere is this clearer than in the work on mindset. Now, this is very old research. It dates back to Ellen Langer at Harvard in the 80s, 70s, right? Goes all the way through to today. Becca Levy, her, her student who's at Yale, it's brilliant, right? Has carried a lot of that forward, but they're not the only ones, but they're the big examples. But like, what are we now? A positive mindset towards aging, meaning my best days are ahead of me. I think the second half of my life is going to be filled with thrilling, wonderful, exciting possibility. That's all we're talking about, right? It translates to an extra eight years of healthy longevity. This means if you're morbidly obese and have a shitty mindset towards aging and you want to change, you can only change one thing, change your mindset. It's going to have a bigger impact. It has more or as much of an impact as quitting smoking if you're a chronic over a pack a day smoker. I mean, these are big, big impacts. And here's the flip side. We also know if you have a shitty mindset towards aging, right? If you grew up suffering ages, right? The most acceptable stereotype in the world, Becca Levy's work at Yale tells us by the time you're 60 years old, if you were exposed to ageism or you have a bad mindset towards aging, you have a 30% greater memory decline after 60. That's shocking, right? That's insane. And you don't want to mess with those odds. Now, there is, there's a deeper question about how do you shift a mindset? And we could talk about that a little bit if you want. But as far as you know, the mindset question, it's mindset and robust social connections are probably the, you know, the first two things you want to reach for if you're interested in peak performance aging. So on your point, how can people shift that mindset? So I think there are... As far as I can tell from the research and research we've done at the Flow Research Collective on this, because mindset is very important to peak performance as well, so we do a lot of work in this, there are a number of them. The first two come from Ellen Lang, and they've never, she was right, and they didn't change. So one, pay attention to your language, right? The limit, Wittgenstein said, the limits of my language are the limits of my world, and he was not wrong. So one, check your language all the time. Two, and this isn't a more nuanced but intricate but cool one. Again, Ellen Langer is the one who pointed it out. Try to be, try, she talks about the importance of mindfulness, but what she means by mindfulness, her definition is different, right? Her definition is be curious about the present moment. And her point is, if you're curious about the present moment, you're going to notice that the constant in life is change. Now, the brain doesn't act that way, right? Like we, are, we literally have a brain that pretends everything stays the same. You think you're the same person you were when you were 20 years old. I think I'm the same person I was when I was right? Like, but it's not true. Uh, like, we know it's not true, right? But the brain doesn't believe that. And there's a lot of neurobiological self-protective reasons why that may exist. And there's, there's really a deep literature on this question. But the point of the matter is, when you start to notice that life is constantly change, changing, you get less nervous about the fact that your, your body is constantly changing, that you're what we're calling it aging. It's, it's a form of change, right? And if you just start to notice how much everything is constantly changing, and it's a, it seems more of like a, a change of form than, than substance in a sense, it's very useful. So those are the first two things. The third thing is, I got to be honest, I think those first two things are great. And I think you can't achieve this without them, but they're weak sauce because mindset is deeply rooted. 
And so what we have been doing at The Collective and what the book is about is a NAR style quest, a challenge that you think is so hard in the second half of your life and is deeply meaningful for you that if you accomplish it, it basically KOs everything you used to believe about what was possible in the second half of your life. Believe the proof of your own life, right? So for me, I the crazy experiment, I, I teamed up and there's a bunch of reasons why I chose this, but I tried to learn how to park ski in my 50s, right? And park skiing is the discipline of skiing that involves tricks and jumps and flips and spins, very dangerous, very acrobatic. And for about 11 different reasons, it's supposed to be essentially impossible for somebody my age to learn. And it's not if you understand the new science peak performance aging at all. In fact, I learned how to park ski faster almost than I've ever learned any, any skill. And it wasn't just me, by the way. This is something that I want to point out. We had developed a protocol. I did it first and it worked really, really well. I had a ski partner 20 years younger than me, right? He was applying it. And he's a former sponsored athlete who went to college, stopped being an athlete, had a family, had a career, and came back to it in his late 30s. And he made more progress using this. And, and we went, okay, this is really amazing. But this is what? like This is the sexiest pilot study anybody's ever done, but it's not real data. So we came back the following year. We took the same protocol. We took 17 older adults, ages 29 to 68, most of whom were like intermediate skiers and snowboarders. And we used the same protocol and four days on the mountain, trained them up so they could they could do it. And then we realized we were on to something. Then we stripped out the action sports because not everybody wants to learn an action sport. And we reran the protocol with 300 and some people saying, look, we learned how to, I learned how to park ski. That was my thing. You got to figure out what your thing is. And I've got like, there's hundreds of people who've now done this. I get somebody's, it's everything from there's a, a woman in Japan who's going for her very first solo art exhibit in her 70s. She's been an artist her whole life. This is right to, you know, I've got guys learning how to downhill mountain bike in their 50s. I got rock climbers in their 70s. I got kite surfers in this. It's amazing. I get like emails from all over the world now. This is what I'm doing. This is what I'm doing. There's a guy, a climber who starts to start calling himself Rad Grandpa and he's posting all over Instagram. I mean, like it's been really fun since it's happened, but all of them and everybody we've trained has said the same thing, which is like, creating this kind of challenge, applying the tools of big performance aging and, and overcoming it would change everything. You got to prove it to yourself. And I'm a big believer in that, right? We've got great built-in bullshit detectors. So find a way to prove it to yourself. One of the things I noticed in the work I do helping people transition on, for the non-financial side of retirement is that when I ask people, what do you miss about work? What comes up is, well, I miss the challenge. I don't miss my boss. I don't miss the annoying coworker. But I really miss the challenge, the work helping, pushing me a little bit, helping me grow. So tell me a little bit about why you think challenge and challenging goals are so important in the second half of life. Okay, so I have to answer this question two ways. First, I have to talk a little bit about a question I think you're going to ask me in a little bit, which is what is flow? And I got to talk about what flow is and its benefits for aging. And then I can talk about the role of the challenge. And then I give you a bigger picture. So let me start with flow. I study flow. What is it? Flow is an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best, we perform best. More specifically, it's any of those moments of rapt attention and total absorption. You get so focused on what you're doing, everything else disappears. And all aspects of performance, mental and physical, go through the roof. And it's a step function where the difference. Creativity expands 400 to 700%. Productivity, 500%. The DOD did studies on soldiers in flow. They found they learned 240 to 500% faster than normal 
I can go on and on. Empathy goes up. Ecological awareness goes up. Fast twitch muscle response, strength, pain deadens. There's a whole long list. This is how humans are hardwired for peak performance. It comes built in in all of us. What really matters for this conversation are the following four details. One, flow is fundamental to human happiness, well-being, overall life satisfaction. People who score off the charts for overall being life satisfaction are people with the most flow in their lives. This is one of those well-established facts in psychology. Psychologists have three levels of happiness that are achievable by all humans. The number one and number two have flow built into their definitions. So this is how we become happy. This is life satisfaction. This is all of it. It's also the most powerful anti-aging tool at our disposal for the following reasons. When we move into flow, there is a global release of a call compound called nitric oxide. It's gases signaling molecules everywhere in the body. Anybody who's ever worked out, right? 20 minutes of your workout, your lungs open up and it gets quiet upstairs, that's nitric oxide. It also pushes all the stress hormones out of your system. So it resets the nervous system at zero. There are nine known causes of aging biologically. All of them have one thing in common, stress and inflammation. So anything that fights stress is an anti-aging technology par excellence. Flow literally resets the nervous system Nothing else does this. It resets back to zero, back to baseline. Very, very potent. It also, because it is one of the most positive emotions available to us, when we feel extremely positive emotions, and if you want more on this, a lot of this work was done by Barbara Friedrichson at the University of North Carolina. Other people have done other work. Besides the broad and build theory and all that stuff that it makes us more resilient, all that stuff, it actually amplifies the production of T cells, immune system, and natural killer cells. Those are the cells that target tumors, and senolytic cells. So like two of the big causes of aging and cancer are get flushed out of our system. So flow has this huge benefit, quality of life and quantity of life. So really, really important. Now, why did I tell you all that in the question about challenge? Because flow states have triggers, preconditions that lead to more flow. There are 27 that have been discovered. There's probably way more, but that's what we know. The most famous, the golden rule of flow. Flow follows focus. So what all the triggers do is they drive our attention in the present moment. We pay the most attention to the task at hand, the present moment, when the challenge of the task slightly exceeds our skill set. You want to stretch, but not snap. We know from work done by Miyajik Samiyai, the godfather of flow psychology, just passed away. And, and we took his some of his research into the Flow Research Collective and batted on The difference is about 5%. You want, in normal situations, the challenge will be about 5% greater than your skill set. Now. As we get older, the challenge skill sweet spot shrinks a little because of allostatic load, the impact of stress over time. So it could be a little smaller, sometimes depending on, like if you've spent your life in financial markets and you're facing a financial challenge, then it's about 5% greater. But if you're dealing with, oh, I'm trying to learn to kite surf in my 70s, no, no, it might be 1%, right? And so it's different and that's important for how we learn and everything else. But my point is, 30 years of data going back to Gene Cohn's work at the National Institute of Aging says challenging activities are phenomenal for peak performance aging, for mental acuity, for building up cognitive reserve, preserving physical function, all that stuff. And they have this huge flow benefit. So correctly knowing how to take challenges and utilize challenges is absolutely fundamental. Let me take this one step further. Let me give you peak performance aging in a single sentence, and then we can talk about what all these components mean. If you want to rock to your drop, as I like to say, you have to regularly engage in challenging, creative, and social activities 
that demand dynamic, deliberate play and take place in novel outdoor environments. That is peak performance aging in a single sentence. And notice that nobody talked about diet in that sentence. There was no like, there were no substances in that sentence. There were no pharmacological interventions in that sentence. Nobody was bathing in ice in that sentence. It's that's, I just like to point that out that all the stuff the biohackers are doing is not the stuff that like, there's 60 years of data saying that like this, these are the big levers. See, these are the things that give you eight to 10 more years of really high quality life. And it may, some of that may be cumulative, right? That's the weird thing about peak performance aging. Like nuts give you, you eat a couple of nuts a day, you get three more years of life. You have robust social relationships, you get eight more years of life. You have a good mindset towards aging. It's another eight years. Well, is this cumulative? Because that's 20, you know, that's I'm 17 years up now or 19 years up, pardon my math. I know it's not cumulative, but it makes you wonder what could make it cumulative. That's an interesting question. That's one powerful sentence, which, as you pointed out, is not sponsored by anyone. Definitely not sponsored by anyone. Yeah, it's really not. In fact, the, the, only, the funny thing is the people who benefit the most are actually the action sport industry because that's the funny thing is it turns out that action sports are actually phenomenal for aging. They're phenomenal. And by the way, anybody who goes to a ski resort or a, like get on a mountain, 50% of the people there are over 50. A lot of them are over 70. And they're ripping, really, right? So you see that all the time. And you want to talk about real blue zones. Summit Color, Colorado is the is America's truest blue zone, right? People there live an average of 10 years longer than any place else in America. Pitkin and Eagle County, Colorado are two and three. And that's Vail, Aspen, Beaver Creek, A-Basin, Copper Mountain, Mary Jane, whatever is next to Mary, Winter Park. There's a bunch of others. You get love and pass. You get my point. And Stephen, you mentioned the late Gene Cohen's work at George Washington on creativity. And it brings up a question I wanted to ask you about. What's the relationship that you've noted between creativity and anxiety? Oh, that's an interesting question. So it's not, so creativity, it's curiosity and anxiety are the, is the real relationship. Okay, creativity comes off of curiosity. But so this, it was actually Temple Grandin the animal behaviorist who first figured this out working with mammals, most mammals cannot feel anxiety and curiosity at the same time. The reason is neurobiologically, it's the same thing. Norepinephrine, the chemical norepinephrine, the neurochemical norepinephrine, uh, neuromodulator technically, is underpins both. A little bit of norepinephrine, it's curiosity, it primes learning, it's wonderful. Too much is anxiety. So this is, we talk about the challenge skills sweet spot. A little bit of norepinephrine is where you want to be. Too much you're overwhelming the system, right? This is the whole, this is, if you were, if you speak physiology, this is the Erks-Dobson curve, by the way. This is one of the oldest findings in physiology. It goes back 70 years. So again, not new information, just new names. I missed everybody, no, but it did strike me when I read that curiosity. You can't be curious and anxious at the same time. The connection to- but here, so here's, but here's the cool thing. And here's the thing people have to understand. So this was a crazy study done at Harvard on on reframing and based on this idea. So they discovered that excitement is also norepinephrine, right? So like curiosity, excitement, flow triggers are underpinned by norepinephrine because when there's norepinephrine in our system, we pay, whether it's fear, anxiety, or curiosity, we just pay more attention to what's in front of us naturally, right? 
In fact, the example I always like to give is romantic love. We've all fallen in love. And what happens when you fall in love? You can't stop thinking about staring, blah, 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 fixating on the person you're falling in love with. What is romantic love? It's dopamine and norepinephrine. It's those two chemicals that produce that heightened focus. A lot of the things that trigger flow also do this, but it's, so at Harvard, they discovered that you could, they wanted to know if you're facing extreme stress, what works better? Do you want to try breath work? Do you want to write an embodied practice or reframing? And what they found is that it takes about seven minutes worth of breath work to calm you down from like a really hypervigilant state, or you can stand up and go, I am excited. I am excited. I am excited three times in a row. And literally it's enough to switch it. And we do this in workshops with like, we, we run it with people and that people, are, they freak afterwards because you don't. So when I talk about peak performance is getting your biology to work for you rather than against you this is one tiny example, but everybody can do this. Not sponsored by anybody, sponsored by your biology, right? I want to get your thoughts on the cognitive side of things. What can people do to stay sharper? So that's interesting. We, this is a question about cognitive reserve, right? How do you maximize your cognitive reserve? And what we know, going all the way back, Yakov Stern, Ekanon Goldberg, work in the 90s, the nun study on, on aging, wisdom and expertise are the two best ways to build up cognitive reserve. You want to develop wisdom, you want to develop expertise. Now, interestingly, flow is what underpins both. And what I mean by this is, one, flow naturally expands uh, wisdom, which is a measurable trait in the brand. It's clearly defined. We know what it is. It ha- Flow exp- naturally expands empathy and wisdom. It just uh, grows over time. It's an in. Except me, I used to talk about flow as the engine of adult development for this reason. Because on the other side of a flow state, our skills go up because we're stretching our skills to get into flow. So we're learning. So expertise comes up. And then there's... you. And on the other side, you become wiser and you become more empathetic. This happens naturally. In fact, there's an argument made, uh, I'm I'm forgetting the neuroscientists who made it, but a lot of people think that flow is a signal of mastery. It's literally like it's good for the human organism to know when it's mastered a skill. So flow is a signal of mastery. So if you want like expertise protects against cognitive decline, how do you know you have real expertise? If you are getting regularly into flow when you were involved in the thing, that's a really good sign. So that's just a, a random flow bit. But take it a step further, Yakov Stern, this is really, have you seen this research? Every additional leisure activity builds up cognitive reserve by additional 8%. So I have learned to park ski in my 50s. I'm also teaching myself how to draw again and learning to play a musical instrument, right? And I, you know, and I constantly am doing research and using my mind and striving, challenging and doing all that stuff. But like, I just, I'm going after those kinds of challenges because I don't want to mess around with it. But other thing, we know, this is why robust social relationships matter so much because you also, that's because your friends surprise you, right? That's the thing about other people is they're surprised you can't plan for them. And that's the stuff that really causes you to use your brain. So I think it's really important and all the literature is really clear. It's not just having great, robust friendships, cross-generation, have friends in every era. So your brain is constantly being pushed, right? And you know this. I mean, Daniel Levitin said it really well. He said, look, the best advice we can give you on peak performance aging in a single sentence is don't retire. 
right? Don't retire. And it's not, he's not saying don't stop doing the job you did for 20 years. He's saying don't stop using your brain and seeking out challenge and having difficult social interactions, which is the other thing we get at work. I mean, it's one of our pain in the asses. Like we bitch about it. We want it gone. We're not, it's one of the things we don't miss about work, right? But it turns out those difficult interactions actually force you to use your noggin in new and unusual ways. So if you're not getting that, you know what I mean? You got to find people who challenge you intellectually and emotionally and like all that stuff. The emotional challenge is also important because that's wisdom. Wisdom is essentially emotional intelligence writ large. So you want to grow both because they're both very, very diverse networks in the prefrontal cortex, which is why they're impervious to cognitive decline. So when people think about retirement, what are some of the hidden dangers that they may not be fully aware of? One is the answer to the question, where does meaning come from? And a lot of people want to say things like meaning comes from my children or meaning comes from what it turns out in the brain. Meaning comes from very specific things that we know what we're actually talking about. One of the things meaning comes from is your ability to lean into and accomplish long-term challenges, things that are two years in development, five years in development. It took me three years to work to this promotion or two years to launch this product. And because the brain understands those are like you gain a lot of skills. And those things, like when you have a lot of those over time, that's the feeling of a, of a life well-lived. That's how we feel. That's one of the things that gives us a life well There's other stuff. There's interpersonal stuff and there's all that. Don't get me wrong, but this is part of the calculation that people don't think about. You want to hidden dangers of retirement. So you have to. In our style quest, one of the other things about it is the way I always phrase it colloquially is every, we need a mission. We always need a mission. Because in a mission, you're going to go a hell of a lot farther and harder than you're going to do if you've just got a hobby, right? There's a, I got a hobby. Okay. No, no, I'm on a mission. It's a totally different thing. And you bring a total, it's a different gear. You need to be on a mission. And that's one of the, that's one of the things that work gave us. Maybe it wasn't a mission you're choosing. Cool. Okay. Now you have time to have missions of your own choosing. That's even better um, for a bunch of like brain protect, neuroprotective reasons. but You can't. That's one of the great dangers of retirement, I think. I also think it's just the lack of stimulation across the board is really what it is. I like, yeah, I mean, I, but the advantage where it gets really interesting and and like the hidden opportunity is in the physicality. So I said that if you want to regularly engage in dynamic activities, right? What is dynamic? Dynamic is a, a shorthand term that means any activity that involves strength, stamina, flexibility, balance, and agility, which are five physical user loser skills. And as we age, we have to train all five over time. In fact, the World Health Organization has very explicit guidelines for peak performance aging, right? It's 150 to 300 minutes of vigorous aerobic activity every week, two strength training days, three balance, agility, and flexibility days. And if you're really training those things, it's about an hour and a half of work, five days a week, or you find a single activity, action sports, that bundle all these things together. This is why, I don't know if you, do you ever see the MIT, uh, the Mayo Clinic study? There was a 20-year review. I can't remember where they got their data from. Oh, the, the, the Copenhagen Heart Study, that famous, famous heart, right? They took it 20 years of data and they want to know what sports correlate to the most longevity. And tennis tops the list, right? You play tennis regularly, it adds nine years to your life. But the tennis, badminton is seven and then you, all the stuff people are talking about, like swimming is down there at like three, right? Nobody's talking about badminton for longevity. 
And so what is that about? It's about dynamic motion. And the, what's the big deal with dynamic motion? Two things, because we were talking earlier about how do you protect the brain? One of the reasons exercise is so important is it protects the brain, but it's dynamic exercise. When you have to coordinate balance and agility, agility essentially with strength and stamina, when all three have to come together at the same time, it amplifies angiogenesis and neurogenesis. The birth of new blood vessels in the brain and the birth of new neurons in the brain are amplified by dynamic activity significantly. So you're not just protecting all the body, the user loses skills, you're actually protecting the brain. You're building new blood vessels to get oxygen to the new brain cells that you're producing. And that's a big deal, right? If you want to maximize it, it's you know dynamic activities in novel outdoor environments because the brain evolved. We evolved in novel outdoor environments and the brain is built to sort of remember where you were when you're outside, wants to remember where you were when something emotionally important happens. How do I know this? Because most of the new brain cells that show up, show up in the hippocampus. Hippocampus does long-term memory, but it also does place. It has grid cells and location and everything we call long-term memory, semantic memory, procedural. All of it is an outgrowth of these foundational place and grid cells that are in the hippocampus and entorhinal cortex. If you want to preserve those cells and birth new ones, you want dynamic activities in novel outdoor environments, which is why you get 10 more years of life if you live in Summit County, Colorado and ski regularly and things like that. That's exactly where it's coming from. And don't forget the almonds each day. And the almonds, of course. But Joe, I think they're secretly sponsoring your program, so I don't know. There you go. So another thing that stood out to me was your notation about the importance of leg strength. To talk a little bit about why leg strength matters. Yeah, so it, this is another one of those head scratches. You're like, really? Seriously? So the single most important correlate for peak performance aging for longevity and health span and lifespan is strong legs. Thigh muscle mass inversely correlates with mortality. And it is also the most important thing you can do for preserving cognitive function. It's not just physical health, it's brain function. And there's three reasons why, and they're all important. The first is that people without strong legs, one, they're much more likely to fall down, break a hip, get a secondary infection and die, which is the third most common killer of older adults, right? You've got cancer, heart disease or heart disease, cancer and slipping and falling, and getting a secondary infection, right? And it's because you don't have strong legs. Okay, that's one. Two is if you start to lose your balance, start to lose your mobility, social life deteriorates. And we saw the inverse of this during COVID. COVID killed more of the elderly than necessary because of the quarantine, because people weren't walking around and having robust social lives. So it really accelerated mortality, all cause mortality. This is the lever there. But the third one is the most interesting one. It's the least well-known and people don't know how to train this. So it's cool. The third big one is actually loss of bone density. So what people don't realize is that the bones are the mineral factory of the body and the brain runs on calcium, among other things. And so the bones store the calcium that the brain runs on. It's one of the places it gets stored that can cross the blood-brain barrier. And because bone density decreases over time, we it's one of the reasons brain function declines and things like that. So there are now, I don't know if you're hip to OsteoStrong. OsteoStrong is a really neat company. They basically, so it turns out we know lifting heavy weights improves bone density. 
working out, I'm a big advocate of weight vests and hiking with a weight vest for, for training for this reason. But if you really want to improve bone density very quickly, you need to massively overload all the joints in a safe way. Osteostrong is a company that built four exercise machines that do just that. And they've got, they've been in business for a decade. They've got like 120 locations all over America. They're everywhere. And they've got really, it's really well documented. They can, they massively improve bone density and a workout. It takes two minutes. You literally have to do four exercises three times each. The, it, by the way, you wake up the next day, you feel like you worked out for two hours. It doesn't feel like it at the time you feel it. the next day. You're like, oh my God. But it's re- they, they track it and you can go get a DEXA scan before and after. It's like you can, it's amazing the results they're getting. But as a result, they're seeing some of these butt blood diabetes goes down. That's another bone mineral problem a little bit, brain health improves. So there's, there's secondary consequences. And this is sort of, I don't know, this is the cutting edge of, of really anti-aging and peak performance aging is the involvement of bone health in longevity. That's sort of what's the frontier. That's one of the big frontiers right now. Another thing that jumped out to me about your recent work is a distinction you made between deliberate practice and deliberate play. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So I said, you want to engage in dynamic activities that demand deliberate play. What's the big deal? So we talked earlier, you want to stave off cognitive decline. What do you need? Expertise and wisdom. What does that translate to in the real world? Lifelong learning, right? Lifelong learning. That's just, that's what we're talking about. And lifelong learning that drops you into flow. That's really what we're talking about. But what is the best way to learn becomes the next question. If you read your Malcolm Gladwell or, or paying attention to this popular discussion. You've heard about Anders Ericsson and his 10,000 hours to mastery, and that's deliberate practice. Do the same thing over and over and over with incremental advancement. And it turns out, and Anders was a friend of mine before he passed, we, there are three different arguments to Anders' work. The first was made by Anders himself, who said, wait a minute, this is very skill-specific. This works for violinists, mathematicians, a couple other people. This is not general advice. The second was mounted by David Epstein in his book, Range, where he talked about, right, generalism as the faster path towards mastery, not actually early specialization. And the third one was me and Rise of Superman. And it's because flow accelerates the path to mastery, right? The Department of Defense, soldiers in flow learn 250 to 500% faster than normal. That is accelerating the path to mastery. And Anders and I used to talk about this before he passed. But I will also say that the bigger challenge is the work on deliberate play. Deliberate play is, instead of doing the same thing over and over with incremental investment, it's literally like, do the thing you did and then improvise a little bit on top of it in some fun, novel, creative way. And what's the big deal for learning? Well, the big deal is, how does learning work in the brain? It's neurochemical. The more neurochemicals that show up during experience, better chance that experience has going from short-term holding into long-term storage. That's just how it works. Now, certain neurochemicals have more power than others. Dopamine and endorphins, very, very powerful in terms of storing memory. Mothers never forget the birth of their children, despite the fact that they've completely forgotten the pain of the surgery, right? The pain of the childbirth, everything else is imprinted. That's endorphins. So the, you get endorphins and dopamine when we play. And those are two huge reward chemicals. They cement memory. And Normal learning is just dopamine. So play actually produces that. You also, when you play, there's no shame, there's no embarrassment, there's no wrong. 
There's no wrong. And so shame, embarrassment, self-consciousness, these all, they block learning. They shrink the challenge skills sweet spot. They make everything so much harder. But the third advantage to play, this is what I always say, is deliberate practice, there's one right answer. I did the thing I did before with a little bit improvement. That's the only right answer. And when you get it right, you get a little bit of dopamine. But there's one right answer. Deliberate play, there's only one wrong answer. I did the thing I did last time. That's the only wrong. Everything else is I'm doing something different and I'm learning from it. That's all we're doing, right? I'm doing something different and I'm learning from it. And it turns out that produces way more dopamine and it massively amplifies learning. So all of these things, if you want to stave off dementia, cognitive decline, build up cognitive reserve, all this stuff, brain health, and by the way, massively improve the quality of your life and the fun you're having and everything else, and lower stress levels because learning, when we increase our competence levels, you feel safer in the world. When we feel safer in the world, there's less stress and it lowers cognitive loads. So this has anti-aging benefits as well. So there's a, there's a big feedback loop of good, positive things that, that you sort of you want over time. Love to get your thoughts on risk aversion as we get older. This is one of the key things. If we want to, there are gateways to adult development and there are gateways to peak performance aging and the things you have to do at every decade, right? Starting in your 20s, really. But in your 50s, one of the things you have to start doing for sure 100% of the time and I would say earlier is better starting your 40s or 30s because it's hard to start in your 50s. But 50s, like if you're not, by the time you get to your 50s, I think of the 50s as an interesting decade because if you're not moving forward, you're moving backwards is where I think that that starts to sort of show up. The risk aversion in, in our 50s becomes this thing you want to actively train against. And the question is why? And for that, we this is Gene Cohn's work. This starts with Gene Cohn's work. So Gene Cohn, he didn't discover this, but he put it together and he basically figured out that as we enter our 50, 50s, there are profound shifts in how the brain processes information. And we gain access to a suite of like legitimate cognitive superpowers, right? Three new levels of intelligence start to come online, whole new levels of creativity, including, by the way, divergent thinking, which is the hardest aspect of creativity to train. Um, and I'm somebody who trains people in creativity. It's hard to train divergent thinking, right? You get new empathy and you get new wisdom. These are all superpowers and wisdom neuroprotective against cognitive decline. So bonus there on top of it. But it's an if then, right? This isn't automatic. You have to do certain things. So if you want access to these superpowers, there's stuff you have to do in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. But in your 50s, creativity is what unlocks it. Challenging creative activities unlock these cognitive superpowers. But if you want to maintain them, once you've unlocked them, you have to train down risk aversion. Why? Because risk aversion over time increases anxiety. Anxiety, which is norepinephrine and cortisol, does a number of things in the brain. One of the big things it does is when we're anxious, we're selfish. So it shuts down empathy. When we're anxious, we're not wise. It shuts down wisdom. When we're anxious, it actually blocks learning. Too much norepinephrine, you blocked learning. When we're anxious, it also is a little known fact, but it blocks creativity. So the more scared we are, the more logical and linear, tried and true the brain wants to be. It doesn't want something new and novel and creative. It want, And the part of the brain that is literally charged with finding outside the box solutions, the anterior cingulate cortex, it hinges on norepinephrine. If there's not a lot of norepinephrine in the anterior cingulate cortex, it goes, oh, not a lot of stress. 
What's the creative solution? Let's look for other options. But, and the, everybody knows this, fight or flight. What is fight or flight? It's extreme fear and you have three options. You can flee, you can freeze, or you can, right, fight. I mean, like those three options, that's what happens with all stress, but blocks creativity. So all the superpowers of aging go away if we don't take care of risk aversion. So you have to constantly be fighting against risk and risk inversion increases over time naturally. And they think it's, and it's a weird one. It actually appears to be tied to gray matter density in the right temporal lobe. And what that's about is gray matter is, excuse me, white matter density is myelination. So myelination is the insulation on the wires. When myelination decreases, processing speed decreases. So the brain goes, oh shit, you're a step behind be a little more cautious. So that's how risk aversion works. And it compounds with allostatic load over time, which is stressing over time. So those two things start to produce really sort of detrimental effects. And they also make you stop wanting to fight back, right? And aging demands that you sort of fight back and not sort of accept the fact, like, because you're willing in your 20s, I was told I was never going to run again, ski again. I was going to have trouble walking again when I was 20, who I want to say, because I shattered my legs into 65 hairline fractures. Of course, none of those things were true, but I had no problem telling a doctor to go to hell and going out and fixing. If I would have gotten that diagnosis at 70, right, would I, you have to have the fortitude to be able to say, no, 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 this like, screw you, like the same rules apply, but people don't. And risk aversion is part of that problem as well. When you think back on your park skiing experiment, what's one thing that surprised you? How fast I learned to park ski. I mean, like, honestly, I am not a naturally gifted athlete. I'm a very good athlete because I've been at it a very, very long time, but I'm not a naturally gifted athlete. Anybody who knows much about my history knows I've broken a colossal amount of bones. I always like to say I'm a bad athlete in a broken body with a busy schedule, right? So when I went into this, I thought there were a bunch of reasons I went into it, but I thought if it takes me five years, it takes me five years. I made a list of 20 tricks that would cover zero. I have no skills where I started to intermediate. I figured if it takes five years, if I learn how to park ski by the time I'm 60, well, that's pretty rad and punk rock. And I like that. Cool. And I learned all 20 tricks in in a season. Now, perfecting them is a lifetime of work, but I like I once and I was shocked. So my point is, and by the way, this is what happened with everybody else who we trained. And it's because of how we did it. We started with a very simple assumption, which is it was two things that we did more than anything else. One, we didn't teach people how to park ski. We broke park skiing into eight foundational movements that everybody could do. Jumping, crouching, slashing, grinding. So there was an entry point. We said, start with an established motor pattern, something you can do 100% of the time with zero fear and no contra-interference and build on it one inch at a time. Go slow to go fast. All we're trying to teach you is, that's a big-ass jump. Don't go hit the jump. What it is is a big hill of snow, so use it creatively. The idea was creativity, pattern recognition. When you interpret a terrain feature in a new way, that's a flow trigger. Drives dopamine, drives flow. Once people are in flow, that automatically took care of the learning. And then we're, there were a bunch of rules to keep people in flow that I won't go into. And a handful of, and we trained people not through instruction verbally. It was all through, we played follow the leader games based on dynamic play. 
do what the person in front of you did. If you have the trick, if you don't have the trick, downshift it until it's in one inch above your sweet spot in a playful way. It's all we did. And people would drop into flow so fast. Flow amplifies learning so much that four days on the hill, everybody made massive amounts of progress. And by the way, you don't have to take my word for it. Go to narcountry.com. We videotaped everything. We've got followed around by a national geographic documentary filmmaker. There's a seven minute video that shows the experiment we ran with everybody. You can see what happened. Don't believe me. Like read the book, watch the video. Don't take my word for it at all. But, and read the white paper if you're interested in the nitty gritty details. But like, it wasn't just, so the thing is, Joe, this, and this may be a, like a great way to bring this all, all together is I knew all this stuff. I'd read all the Gene Cones where I'd read all the literature. I've been, I've been studying this stuff for 30 years, right? Chick sent me high, was a friend of mine. And you know what I mean? Like, so I knew all this stuff, but it was true in the lab. Was it true in the wild? Was it true? Nobody done it. Besides Ellen Langer and the counterclockwise experiment and a couple others, and nobody had really done it with peak performance aging. They had done it with like mindset and reframing and like small stuff. But I was like, no, no, no. If this stuff is true, everything I experienced should happen. But nobody thought it was going to be, even the experts, right? People were like, dude, what are you doing? This is crazy. You know, like, this is crazy. Even my friends who are action sport athletes, professional and crazy. They were like, what are you doing? Like, no, you can't, like nobody learns to park ski in their fifties. You're out of your mind. But it turns out there's a huge, like surfing has the uncles movement, which is surfers in their fifties, sixties, seventies, and eighties were rocking it. I'm Derek Ho at 66 just competed in the Eddie, the big wave world championship. Like it's the gnarliest surf in the world at 66. He just competed in the Eddie. So like this stuff is happening at a level that we haven't seen before. And it, I'm super excited because I know this is contrary to the, the, the this is a retirement, a sort of a, a retirement uh, podcast, but what I've said about all this stuff, and I say at the end of NAR, is this is a business revolution. Like the very skills we want most in employees right now, we want creative and innovative employees so we can keep up with the rate of change in the world. And we want empathetic and wise employees because one, diversity is usually important. Social justice is usually important. But most importantly, customer-centric thinking is the mantra of 21st century business. And if I'm not empathetic and wise, I can't think like my customer and I'm going to get left behind. The ideal worker is a well-trained over 50, over 60, over 70-year-old, right? And the creativity that comes on, starts to come on live in our 50s, this is Gene Cohn's work, it peaks in our 80s, right? Peaks in our 80s. This is exactly what we want in our companies right now. This is a business revolution waiting to happen. Uh, so that's like the neatest thing for me as a guy who runs a company, right? Like, this is really cool. Well said. And last question. Some of the people listening are getting older. And like we all are. If you were to give them one piece of advice on where to start to try to apply some of these key things, what would you highlight? It's a funny one. So in flow science, there's something called your primary flow activity. This is really whatever you've done most of your life that drops you into flow. For me, it's skiing. For my wife, it's hiking the dogs in the back. My best friend is playing guitar. Other people, it's learning how to samba or salsa or take your pick, right? Code, computers, read books, ride horses, whatever that thing is for you. Research shows that you want to double down it. What does that really mean? If you can engage in your primary flow activity about four hours a week, 
two hour set, two two hour sessions, one four hour block. It makes a huge difference. Makes a huge difference for. Let me give you four reasons. One, we talked about the the anti stress stuff. So you're resetting your nervous system every week. This has huge anti aging benefits, right? Huge, huge quality of life and mood benefits. So those further cascade into lower stress, better, et cetera. Also, flows of focusing skills, a very particular kind of focus, but it's trainable. So the more flow you get, the more flow you get. And here's the cool thing that heightened creativity and heightened productivity, that tends to outlast the flow state. Uh, work out of Harvard says the heightened creativity can outlast the flow state by a day, maybe two. And there's ways to work with it to really ensure this, this happens in a better way. But my point is, I go skiing on a Saturday. It means that I show up and work on Monday and I'm more productive and I'm more creative and like bonus, right? So there's a lot of reasons to double down your primary flow activity, but most importantly is it brings back that fire in the belly. It brings back that joy, that passion, that it revitalizes, it wakes us up again. It makes us feel young in the in a lot of real ways. And it's so, so so important. So, and if you can figure out if you're what drives you into flow is, by the way, challenge is a flow trigger. Creativity is a flow trigger. Proper social activity is a flow trigger. Group flow. I could like, so a lot of that novelty is a flow trigger. A lot of that sentence I gave you, these are flow triggers, right? That whole sentence is designed to produce flow. So, but the simplest way to start is just double down your primary flow activity, right? And the problem with, and this is the last thing I'll say, this is exactly what we stop doing as we age, right? We set down childish things. The skateboard gets put away. The surfboard gets put away. And I must, I got to work all the time and provide for my family, like whatever it is. Like, and this is the stuff you stop doing. And it's literally killing you, literally killing you. You are dying young because you have stopped doing these things. And this is actually... Tell you this is a final story. If you got time for one more quick story before I go, this is where our country came from. I've been studying this stuff forever, but what was the shift? It was the last conversation I had with Mihai Csikszentmihalyi before he passed away, and I had called him up because he is always he's just a lifelong action sport athlete. He's an outdoorsman. He was a mountaineer. He was a rock climber. Early research on flow. But I started to realize for a bunch of different reasons that aren't worth getting into that action sports had played a much bigger role in his life. Than I sort of actually thought. So I called him up to ask him about the role that action sports had played really in flow research and everything else. I was like, and I asked him in a sort of a bold way. I was like, Mike, look, I know you, you TED talk, you talk about your time at a concentration camp. That was the impetus for flow. And I know your early research is on, it's on artists, right? Your first, your work is really on artists and why they appreciate the work and all that stuff. But between you and me, this is actually you were an action sport athlete. You were like a hardcore rock climber. Stuff was happening in the mountains that you couldn't explain. And you can't sell action sports to the masses, I know, especially in the, in the 60s when you were doing this. So you went in, in these other directions with the story. But tell me, the tr- and there's this huge pause, like 30 seconds goes by, and then a minute, and then a minute. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, I've just insulted my mentor, the godfather of like, oh crap. Like, oh no, what do I do? Finally, he says, well, Stephen, you got to be careful. And I'm thinking to myself, oh crap, what's he talking about? And Mike had had a stroke. So the other reason I'd called him is to check on him. And I was like, oh my God, did it affect, like, I got to be careful. Like it's like the ultimate non sequitur. And I was like, well, Mike, what do you mean? I got to be careful. And he said, well, 
Steven, you do something your whole life for flow. And then you get to be my age. Forget about climbing mountains. Some days I can't get out of bed. Have a backup plan. You got to be careful. And so what he was telling me was like one flow junkie to another. Don't just have one way of getting into flow as you age. Have as many as you possibly can. And it resonated to me because I was a big mountain skier. My entire retirement plan was keep doing all the stuff you're doing. And this is ski these big gnarly lines. And I was like, oh my God, this is the exact, like I made, he's telling me don't make the same mistake as I did. And I was all geared up to make that mistake. So that was like the final straw. And I was like, okay, now let's run this experiment and figure this out. Great takeaways. Stephen, thank you for such a wonderful conversation. Jam-packed with, with knowledge. Joe, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Great questions. Fun talking to you. Be well. Same here. Thanks. Thanks for sticking around for the takeaway segment. Three ideas to turn this conversation into action steps you can use. I have to say, this was the most challenging conversation to narrow it down to just three highlights for your consideration. But here goes. Number one, what's your primary flow activity? Stephen highlights so many benefits of flow states that this is the logical place to start, as he mentioned. What are those things that you do on a regular basis that get you into flow? As he mentioned, it can come from a wide range of activities. Could be sports you're involved in. Could be reading, writing, something creative. Could be dancing, music. What is it for you? Clarify what that is and make sure you prioritize engaging it for at least four hours each week. And keep in mind his comments about lifelong learning. That's something that you want to have in your life. That will drop you into flow. And as you mentioned, keep learning and keep taking on new novel things. Number two, in retirement, what will your mission be? I appreciated his comments that you need to go beyond mere hobbies. This is something that are, well, is likely a multi-year type of, of project or, or mission. And as he mentioned, it's one really rich source of meaning. He just defined it as your ability to lean into completing a longer-term challenge. So what is it for you? What projects or missions or initiatives that may be a year, two years, three years or more would be meaningful to you and others as you think about your retirement? Number three, invest in peak performance aging. I just want to highlight his definition again, that it's really about getting biology to work for you rather than against you. So what are those key things you want to engage in on a regular basis to keep you at your best physically, cognitively, and spiritually? And two particular things to keep in mind are challenge and creative activities. As he mentioned, challenging creative activities can really unlock cognitive superpowers, as he mentioned, like empathy and wisdom. And I'll close with his one-sentence description of peak performance aging. As he said, it's regularly engaging in challenging, creative, and social activities that demand dynamic, deliberate play and take place in novel outdoor environments. Thanks for listening to Retirement Wisdom Podcast. Our mission is to help you retire smarter. You can browse all of our episodes across six seasons at our website, retirementwisdom.com. We'll be back soon with some new conversations. 